One of the main lessons that we've been looking at in Jeremiah is that God will always preserve a remnant. He will always have for himself a remnant that is left to carry out the purposes of God in the world. God's people may be attacked, oppressed, besieged, scattered, dispersed all over the face of the earth, but they will never be lost. God will always have for himself a remnant. It started in the days of Noah. It was just a remnant of eight on an ark as the waters covered the world. And before Abraham became a great nation, it started with just one, his son, Isaac, which means the son of promise. And in the days of Jacob, Joseph himself was sent by God into Egypt that he might preserve a remnant on earth. And in the days of Jewish kings, only a remnant survived the fall of Jerusalem, which was prophesied by Isaiah as well as Micah and Jeremiah himself when Isaiah said, though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. While not as pronounced in the New Testament as it is in the Old Still, we see this theme of a remnant remaining even in the New Testament where Jesus called his disciples a little flock. And Paul touched on the remnant theme in his letter to the church in Rome when he wrote this in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. By the way, all of those things were true except one thing. He was not the only one left. Verse 4, but what God replied to him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's always a remnant preserved by God, even in this postmodern, post-Christian world that we live in. And our strength as a church is not found in our strategy or our size or in our survival skills. And it doesn't depend on religious liberties being kept or political leaders fighting for them. The strength of the church of Jesus Christ is found in God and God alone. It is found in the promises that he himself has made. That Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So with that as an introduction, let's look at this portion of the remnant that begins to emerge found in Jeremiah chapter 40 in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nabuzeradan. That's a a word, a name that I will say four different ways, so just get used to it. Uh, Nabuzeradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go. From Ramah. Let me just read that again. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he took him bound in chains, 
along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. This Babylonian captain sounds more like a prophet than he does a soldier. In fact, he sounds like Jeremiah. These are the things that Jeremiah has been saying for some 40 years now. How ironic that the enemy of God's people is declaring what God's people refuse to believe. It's just another example of God using even shady characters to exact his divine plan. He used Nebuchadnezzar, the evil, pagan, godless king. God called Nebuchadnezzar my servant. He said, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's speaking through Nebuchadnezzar's captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar. He's using this pagan man to declare the word of God, the truth that Lord once revealed. This needs to remind us again, and this has been a theme that we've picked up on many times in the book of Jeremiah, that God will use whomever and whatever he deems necessary. He will, he will use a godless person to speak truth to you. He will use a godless nation to exact his plan. He will even use a godless boss to get your attention. He still does these things today. Of course, we want to see it as all the evil that is beseeching us. But I need you to understand that we are not victims of the godlessness that surrounds us. Of course, we don't want to engage in godlessness. We want to resist the devil and flee from evil. And we certainly need to be those who are praying that God would exalt righteousness and put down evil. But none of what we face as God's people keeps God's purposes from coming to pass. He is sovereign over all. And he will use whomever and whatever he deems necessary. Now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says to Jeremiah. I've done real well. I've said it four times and said it all the same way. So we're, we're doing good. I'm on a roll. Thank you. My wife, she knows how to encourage me. Verse 4. Now behold, Nebuchadnezzar says, I release you. Jeremiah, today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come. And if I look after and I will look after you well, but if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. Verse 5. If you remain then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor as the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance food, a food and a present and let him go. 
And then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. Now, I want us to just think about what's happening here in this scene. It's, a really, it's, it's a really one of those climactic scenes in this whole story. If, if this were a movie, this would be a high point that would capture everyone's attention. Um, the king of Judah, Zedekiah, has been rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar sends his army and besieges the city. And now, after 18 months, Zedekiah sees the handwriting on the wall, and he and his military men, brave and strong as they are, uh, escape out the back tunnel uh, near his house and run for cover. And he leaves all the people to defend for, them, to fend for themselves. And as Zedekiah and his military leaders are running for cover and trying to spare their lives, they are chased down and captured. And they bring Zedekiah and all of these military people and the nobles and his family to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has him stand in front of his children and nobles while he executes them and makes Zedekiah watch it. And then Nebuchadnezzar gouges out Zedekiah's eyeballs. And he says, that way the last thing you see is the death of those that you loved. And then he puts him in chains and he will be led into Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem has been under siege for 18 months now. And it is completely destroyed and it is burning in the background. And now Je Jeremiah, our, our hero, the one who's written all of these stories with the help of Baruch, he is in chains along with any other Jew who could possibly mount future resistance, leaving only the frail and the sick and the poor behind. And so these prisoners... They're being marched 700 miles through the hot desert to Babylon. When they're about five miles out of Jerusalem at a place called Ramah or Ramah, they're, they're stopped by this captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan. Five, yes. And they're stopped by this captain of the guard who, who, who stops the procession. And he comes looking for Jeremiah. He, he has to call out for him. I don't think they had name badges on. Uh, I don't think there was GPS so he could know right where this massive group of people where Jeremiah stands. He's looking for Jeremiah. Where are you, Jeremiah, the prophet? And all of these that have been besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they're all standing around. They haven't been listening to Jeremiah. They've been mocking him. Now this one is calling out Jeremiah. He singles him out, and he goes up to him, and he has, him take the, has them take the chains off of his hand. And he, and he says to him, you have a choice. You can come with me to Babylon, and I, I, the captain of the guard, will take care of you. Or, if you don't want that pension and that protection, you can go and be with the one who will govern this land that we've just destroyed. You do what seems good to you. Now, can you imagine the drama associated with that? Jeremiah is 65 years old. He's never been treated so good. His whole life he's been ignored, ridiculed, taunted, beaten, thrown in a cistern, left to die. 
All because he spoke the word of the Lord that the people didn't want to hear. And now, on the first day of this long trip into exile, he's pulled out of the line, his chains are removed, and he's given a choice. He can do whatever he wants to do. I'm imagining as someone who's seen such suffering and difficulty, what emotions must have been going through Jeremiah's heart, his mind, what he must have been thinking. What to choose? I mean, if I was 65 and I'd lived a hard life and been in stocks and been thrown into a cistern left to die, had my papers burned, had all sorts of people ridicule and mock me, I might just like to go to Babylon and live on the, on the nickel of the king. That's not what Jeremiah chooses. Eugene Peterson writes, Jeremiah wasn't ready for retirement. He wasn't tired of living by faith. He was used to starting over with nothing. He had been doing it for a long time. He had long since quit calculating his chances by counting his resources. His habit was to expect God's grace new every morning. His decision was unhesitating. He chose to stay in Jerusalem. He chose the rubble, the outcast, the poor, the remnant out of whom he believed that God would build a people to his glory. There's another irony about this scene that I don't know if you caught, but I find a lot of humor out of this. It's that Babylon finances Jeremiah's life. Babylon, the captain of the guard, pays the bill. He gives him an allowance of food and a present. Did you catch that? Did you, did you see what he did? They released him to go, but oh, before you go, here, here's some food, and here's a gift just for you. It reminds me of the story of the old woman who was godly but very poor, and she was getting short on food, and she knelt down in front of an open window, and she prayed out to the Lord, Lord, Provide for my needs. Give me daily bread. And she had a young neighbor who was an atheist. And he overheard her praying and he decided he would teach her a lesson because he knew God couldn't answer her prayer because God didn't even exist. And so he took off to the store and he bought some groceries and he came and set them on the step right next to her front door and he rang the bell and he hid in the bushes. When she came to the door and opened them, she began praising God for this this gift of mercy, this provision from heaven to which the young man jumped out of the bushes with the receipt in hand and said, God didn't buy you those groceries. I did. And she just looked at him and said, hallelujah. God not only provided the food, he made the devil pay the bill. God not only provides for Jeremiah, he makes the Babylonians pay for it. What did David say in Psalm 23? You prepare a table before me in the presence of where? My enemies. God has a wicked sense of humor. It looks like God wants to show Jeremiah that he can use anything and anyone to provide for his needs. And he doesn't just do it for Jeremiah. Look how he does it for the others that are left behind as well. Verse 9. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them 
and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. Sounds like he's been listening to Jeremiah's prophecies. As for me, Gedaliah says, I will dwell in Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Verse 11, likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And look at this. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now, for a people who'd been starving under siege for 18 months, plus those who had been driven to surrounding countries, to be able to dwell in the land and the cities that they had now taken, to be able to gather an abundance of wine and summer fruits and oils, to have enough to store in vessels that they had, well, that was some incredible provision that God gave them. That was so much better than what it had been. Like manna coming down out of heaven, or your shoes and clothing not wearing out for 40 years because God's going to take care of you, whether it's a large mass following Moses or a little remnant following Gedaliah. God takes care of his own. Amen. Speaking of Gedaliah, who is this guy? Who is this guy? I don't know exactly who he is, but I dug a little bit. First, he's a really good leader, if only for a brief time. His name means the Lord is great. And virtually every time he's mentioned in the Bible, we read his whole ancestry. It'd be like every time you say my name, Chris, the son of Roger, the son of Bert. That was my granddad's name. Well, his name was Lavert Frank, but he hated Lavert. Don't call him Lavert. Call him Bert. Okay, so... Chris, the son of Roger, the son of Bert. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Every time we, virtually, every time we see Gedaliah's name, we see his ancestry. They were an important family in Judah, especially to Jeremiah. You see, Gedaliah's grandfather, Shaphan, was King Josiah's secretary. He was the very one who brought the newly discovered book of Deuteronomy to King Josiah that began this reformation and revival that happened in their land, where now temple worship restored, was restored to Yahweh. That's what Shaphan did. And then Gedaliah's father, Ahikam, had personally defended and protected Jeremiah when all the priests and other prophets wanted to execute him because of his sermon in the temple. Ahikam shielded him and protected him. So Gedaliah and his dad and his granddad were Jeremiah's friends. And while Gedaliah's governance was short-lived, which is something we will look out next week, 
Gedaliah and Jeremiah and this motley crew of poor, ragtag, sick, left behind, weren't worth taking into Babylonian exile. He got this group together. And God showed his determination to keep to them his word and fulfill his promise. Promises that we've heard throughout Jeremiah's life, like in Jeremiah 23, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And also in Jeremiah 31, verse 7, thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, God says, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Of course, these promises are pointing to a future release and return of those Babylonian exiles. Seventy years or now by now, it's only about 60 years later, and then the restoration and rebuilding of the temple. That's what that's pointing to. But isn't it cool that this little remnant gets a taste of what is to come? Isn't it just like God to give us a taste of what he plans to do? Isn't it just like God to give them a little glimpse of his eagerness to bless them? It's like God has been sitting up there saying, I just can't wait to bless you again. That's the God we serve. God's promises never fail. And he will always preserve and provide for himself a remnant. He did with Jeremiah and Gedaliah and this tiny group of Judeans that they gave care to. But he also does today for you and me, for all of the followers of Jesus, in every hostile environment where Jesus' followers are persecuted, he provides and preserves a remnant. In the midst of every oppressive regime that denies God's existence, God preserves and provides for a remnant. And in every little thing we face that tries to malign and cancel our mission, reduce us and sideline us, God is still at work preserving and providing for his remnant. Jesus will have for himself a people, a remnant that will one day grow and is growing into a mass of people with every nation, race, tribe, and tongue worshiping around his throne. One day the remnant will be the massive crowd worshiping Jesus. He will have for himself a bride without spot or blemish. He will have for himself a church which he himself is building. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Where are you today? Where do these words find you? Do you feel like you're under siege? Without hope? Or hope dwindling? Resources running out? 
Do you feel maligned, looked over, left behind, wondering how things will ever turn around, ever get any better? Do you feel like all that's left is a widow's mite, just a handful of flour and a little bit of oil, just enough to make one loaf of bread, and then it all runs out? God shows up in places like that. He shows up for those that are least and little and left behind. He shows up when you feel like no one has remembered and everybody has forgotten. He loves to show up in that place. He is anticipating the moment where he can bless you once again and build you up and make you useful in his hand. God shows up to preserve a remnant. He shows up to provide for his own. He shows up to fulfill his promise. May God show up for us today. Amen. In Romans 11, he says, In just the same way, there is at the present time a remnant. And one translation defines remnant as fiercely loyal minority chosen by the grace of God. They're holding on not because of what they think they're going to get out of it, but because they're convinced of God's grace and purpose in choosing them. If they were only thinking of their immediate self-interest, they would have left long ago. But the chosen ones of God were those who let God pursue his interest in them. And as a result, they received the stamp of his legitimacy. And this is a matter of grace. It is not in reference to their actions. Wow. I think it's helpful to remember that even being the remnant isn't something we can be proud of. It's not because we're the only people who got it together, so here we are, a remnant for Jesus. <laughs> it's always and only because of his grace. The message says everything comes from him, everything happens through him, everything ends up in him. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with us? Father, thank you for the narrow way, for the fact that you do shake everything that can be shaken so that what doesn't shake remains, so that we can be clear about the path, about what comes from you and what is part of this world that we can let go of. Thank you that you're disciplining us to hear you clearly and to obey you completely. We're grateful for your choosing and acknowledge that it wasn't because of us. It was always because of you. Yes, but you have chosen us and you've chosen us before the foundations of the world to live in this time and in this place so that we can 
bring the kingdom to bear, first in our own lives through the work of your blood and your spirit, and then in the lives of others through love and sacrifice. So, Father, keep us obedient that we might be a faithful remnant. Yes, Lord. A minority, yes, but a committed people who are agreeing to your purpose and plan being worked out in our lives. Not because of something we've done or because of who we are, but because you alone are the Lord. Yes, Jesus. You know, if you're here today and you just feel those things hitting your heart, you feel under siege, you feel hope dwindling, you feel resources running out, You feel maligned, looked over, left behind, wondering if things will ever turn around. If you feel like all that you have left is just enough to make one last piece before everything's gone. I'd like to pray for us if we're in that situation, any of those situations today, right where you are. If that hits you in your heart, If you're looking to the Lord to do something that changes how you feel, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? Just slip up your hand. Anyone else? Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. Lord, we pray for these that have acknowledged that things are are not good. I pray, Lord, for those that feel hopeless and despair, that feel like they're running dry. I pray for those that raise their hand and anyone else here, Lord, that didn't have the strength to do so, but feels it and knows it. And I ask, Lord, that by your grace, as Donna said, they will see the provision and preservation of God that Jesus never leaves nor forsakes us, that he is always with us, that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. But Lord, when we are depleted and maligned and left behind, it it can feel like that's not true. I pray that their hearts would see you as you really are because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that our perspective changes And I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that it would be supernatural. It would not be the workings of a man, even the preachings of a sermon, or the connivings of people. It would be the power of God in Jesus' name. Fill us again, O Lord, with your Spirit, that we might see the preservation, the provision, and the promises of God resident in our lives that we would be people of faith that we would see you as you really are we ask these things in Jesus name Amen